I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3. We're actually going through two books of the Bible simultaneously uh, on different weeks. Uh, we're not going to be in Proverbs every single week. The other book is the book of Jude, which is a very small book, but it covers some huge, huge issues in uh, reality, and we'll be taking a few weeks on each of those issues. But this morning we're in the book of Proverbs, chapter 3. We're going to cover verses 25 through 35, 11 verses. And what we're going to be focused on is something that we kind of understand, but we really never think about in many cases. Uh, it's that time of the year right now that personally, uh, if I'm not careful, I'll be really bitter. Uh, anyone in here actually like going to school as a kid? Yeah, you, you guys are weird. I'm sorry. Maybe you had a better school, better teacher than me, uh, but I hated it. And it, it, it never failed. This time of the year, you start seeing the ads on TV, you walk into the store, and it's always the back-to-school you know, sales. I'm like, Ugh. I just It just creeps me out. I, I did not enjoy going to school. It's like going to work at a job that you hate and not getting paid for it and knowing you got 13 more years of it in front of you. It's just not fun. But that's what we do in this world, and, and a lot of things have changed lately. And we're getting more homeschooling and private schooling, and, and, and hopefully those are better, and it's not against public schools. Mine just, it was me probably. But the reality is, as you look back on life, let me just ask you this. What do you really use on a daily basis that you learned in school? What do you really use every day that you learned in school? Maybe English, but we butcher that pretty good, so I'm not, I, let's not throw our English teachers under the bus. Uh, maybe basic math counting skills. Uh, I've never been asked to dissect a frog in life, but I'm ready in, in case that occurs. I've never been you know, asked to do any trigonometry or uh, being able to recite all the capitals of all the states. Uh, maybe you have, you've run across that. If you really look back uh, of what we train our kids for, um, maybe some of you use a lot of that. Maybe you even went on to get an advanced degree or a technical school that you use daily in your work. Maybe you, you train to be a doctor and you use a lot of that every single day. But even speaking with physicians, probably 90% of what they do is just kind of repetitious. It really doesn't go into all the foundational stuff they had to learn. So in life, if school, basic school, really doesn't teach you about pretty much what you do every day, where do you learn that from? Where do you learn life skills? This morning, we're going to be looking at Proverbs, and, and the context is simply this. Hold your place where you're at and turn back just a few verses. You may not even have to turn the page to, to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. This is the context. This is Solomon, inspired by God, writing to his son. And the nation of Israel and the church has kept this as the Word of God. And so, though he's writing to his son, um, it's applicable to us. He says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Remember, the commandments here, it's, it's not Solomon's commandments that he's making up. He's identifying the commandments of God 
and attributing them to God, but he's holding them so much so that they're his. So he's speaking from the perspective of this is what I believe. This is what I found to be true. This is the word of God. Hold on to them. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to your life. Let your heart keep my commandments. So it's real basic. The setting is this. A father speaking to his son. He doesn't just say, hey, listen to what I have to say. Do what I tell you to do, not as what I do. No, no. He doesn't go that route. He just says, let your heart keep this. So he's trying to shepherd his son's heart. He's trying to form his heart. Dad recognizes what son needs. There's some basic stuff that we cover in school. But there's some stuff that he needs and he's going after his heart. What did your dad teach you? What did your parents teach you? Who are you today? What I've discovered as I talk to adults, it's amazing how and who they are, how they do things, how they approach things, how they think, is so informed by how they were raised. Not by school, but how they were raised. It's incredible that it still affects and impacts them today. So if you're sitting here today, it doesn't matter if you're not a father that has to raise a child right now. This text applies to you. Because I want you to think about how you think. How you control your emotions. What are your hot button issues? How you respond to people and how you approach people. Because as Solomon lays this out here, as we go through verses 25-35, through you'll see the focus of his text is not stuff, but it's people. It starts with his son and his heart, his emotions, his desires, his thinking, and then it moves to other people But in the midst of that, it brings in a third person. And that person is God. How does life revolve and work around the reality that there is a God who created us and who loves us and who desires certain things? Because if you set all that aside, what you're doing, if you're here today and you're living and you're not thinking about any of that, if you hadn't hid any of God's Word in your heart, you're likely living just kind of reactionary. Maybe reacting against how you were raised and you're going the opposite of it. Maybe taking a little bit of that in, even unconsciously, and and you have certain hot-button issues that you're just, well, that's kind of me. Or you're going the opposite and you're trying to do much better, but much better doing what? And you're, you're trying to find your own answers. I don't know about you, but as a kid, I, I said I hated like school, but I loved extracurricular activities, or at least some of them. I tried wrestling and, and discovered wrestlers, they don't get to eat, so after a year of that, I was gone. But then I tried golf, and I discovered not only do you get to eat at golf, they have this little shop called the Pro Shop where you get to eat hot dogs and junk food, and, and they let you do that during school hours, and you would go out and you'd walk around on this perfectly manicured course, and I was like, yes, I'm a golfer. Not a wrestler, I'm a golfer. And so I love that, right? And parents, you think extracurricular activities, you're like, okay, school teaches kids about English and math. 
extracurricular activities, that's where we go to kind of teach our kids and form their heart about competition and teamwork and selfishness and all that. does a little bit, but think about the pros. Have you ever watched professional football? Do you really want your kids growing up like a lot of those guys? Is it all about winning? Or do you, do you really, I mean, band, 4-H, I mean, whatever the case is, some of those extracurricular activities can be good, but are those the ideas encompassed in those entities, is that really the best way to form and shepherd your kid's heart? Is that where they teach you about people skills? So with that, let's begin in verse 25. He says this, Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. Let's stop there. When it comes. The wicked attacking and sudden terror will come into your life. They don't teach you that in history class. How do you respond when it comes? He's saying, do not be afraid of sudden terror. So he's recognizing that there's some really bad stuff and really bad people in this world and it will come into your life and your natural reaction will be to be afraid. Do you know anyone that is living in fear? no matter how good life is, they're always looking for the next shoe to drop. Or they're looking into the future and see no hope in their situation rather than just taking this day and living it in joy for God. That's easy to do. It's easy to live for tomorrow rather than today and let tomorrow rob you of joy and peace today. They're living in fear. They're living in worry and angst and anxiety. That's a big issue. And Solomon here says, don't do that. Don't do it. Recognize it is a problem. Otherwise, Solomon's not addressing it here. This is a problem right off the bat. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked. Once again, this is not popular today, but Solomon Labels certain people. He calls them wicked. That's a huge, that's a sermon in itself. But recognize there are wicked people out there. So often we're trying to avoid wicked people and and that's our solution. But sometimes you can't avoid them. And, And recognize, and this is really surprising, I've discovered most people try to treat everybody the same. That's how you want your, like, if your kid is like terrible at, at, at baseball, you want your, your coach of that team to treat your kid like he's the starting pitcher. He's not. He stinks. He's going to be riding the bench. That's the reality of baseball. If, if the coach didn't do that, they would lose every game. You can't take that personally. The coach recognizes people have different skill sets. As you're going through life, you do need to recognize certain people are wicked and and deal with them differently don't just pretend like they're not that's the whole avoidance thing we have family members right you go to the family reunion and someone shows up they're the ones that get drunk within like 10 minutes with the bottle that they they snuck into the family reunion and and they're they've ruined the whole thing and everyone pretends like oh that's just bob no bob's wicked he's being an idiot treat bob differently don't let bob come 
uninvite Bob. Have a conversation with him before. Let him know it's nothing personal, but he's behaving poorly. So you have to understand there are wicked and righteous people out there. And we're not constantly in one mode or the other sometimes. But nevertheless, verse 26, here is the solution. He says, for the Lord will be your confidence. There are people out there that have absolutely no confidence at all and some that are arrogant. Both are not good. Let the Lord be your confidence and He will keep your foot from being caught. This is the image in their day and age of how you capture prey. And you would use a snare. And the snare catching the foot would represent basically death. And he says, the Lord's going to watch over you. Don't worry. The Lord will be your confidence. No matter what happens in life, and you see this in the New Testament, even as, as the apostles were willing to lay down their life for Christ, they weren't full of fear, worry, anxiety. They were just praising God that He would get the glory. That takes a special relationship with God. It takes time and effort. Many times people are like, I'm just praying that I won't worry anymore. I'm just praying God will take care of it. No, it takes more than prayer. <laughs> it takes a lot of effort. It takes little steps of faith trusting God in the smaller stuff. It takes repenting. Realizing that you can't just basically sin and be full of worry and fear and then just ask God to fix it. You first have to repent and then learn to trust. That's hard in the midst of fear. He says the Lord is our confidence. Verse 27, he says, do not withhold good from those whom it's due. So he's switching gears here a little bit. He's saying do not hold good from those whom it's due. In other words, he's looking at his own heart and his own motivations of his son when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again, tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. So the setting is this, in life, maybe he's borrowed or owes a debt. Someone has been good to him. And all of a sudden, he has the money, he has whatever it takes to repay it. He says, pay it back if you have it. Have you ever known a person that you loan money to and all of a sudden you see them showing up and you're hanging out and they're like buying $50 lunches and they're going on trips and cruises but they owe you like 200 bucks? You're like, what? You're living high on the hog but you still owe me 200 bucks from five years ago. What's going on here? Don't be that person. And you might think, well, that seems like a really odd kind of niche scenario. Why would Solomon be really teaching that to his son? It's simply this. How often do you have the power to do good and you don't even think about it? You're so focused on yourself that you're not attempting to do good when you have the power to do it, even if it's not owed to you or or there's not a debt to be repaid. He says this um, in regards to his neighbor in verse 29, Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Verse 28, Do not say to your neighbor, so 
The idea here is this. Do you recall in science class where they talked about how you were to be a good neighbor? No. No, it didn't happen. How about even in elementary school where it, school was still at least a little fun where you got like snack breaks and nap time? Did they talk to you about how to be a good neighbor? They actually did a little bit. There's, there's famous books and sayings like, I learned everything I need to know about life in kindergarten about keeping your hands to yourself, quiet time, that sort of stuff. Well, picture this. It's kind of hard for you to understand what neighbor looks like in biblical uh, terminology because today we have houses and we have fences and yards. And maybe if, if you're just getting started in life, you probably understand what neighbor means a little bit better. Because if you're to go to Israel today and you were to see some of the settlements, even from Solomon's time, what neighbors look like is more like an apartment complex think about this you don't have wood in that area of, of the world you have rocks rocks and dirt so if you take the time to build this really thick wall full of rocks around your house and kind of the interior walls as well what you do is your neighbor uses one of your walls as well and you just build out and you build up and so in the ancient world, even in these small towns, it looks like more like a giant apartment complex. So, anyone here ever live in an apartment? Yeah. Were you the guy that's playing music at midnight as loud as you can because you had the right to? Were you the guy that stomps on the floor that sounds like an elephant at 2 in the morning to get your water all the way there and all the way back? And yet you were like, 110 pounds dripping wet. That's what the image of neighbor looks like here. And so whether you like it or not, you have neighbors. Think about your work. Are you in a cubicle and your neighbor is right next to you? Are, are you in an office that has like eight people in it like we do here at the church? We're like out of space and we're all there. And so one person decides they're going to play their music on Country Western where they've lost their dog three times and their wife has left them. And the whole office has to hear it. That sort of stuff really isn't taught in English class, but that's real. Your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Think about that. So do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Think about what's implied in that verse. It means that your neighbor is annoying. <laughs> and there's this temptation to plan evil against them. It says, don't do that. Right? How many of you have a bad neighbor? And you're just like, I just really want to throttle them, Scott. I mean, it's easy talking about it and thinking about it here in church, but you're ready to go off on your neighbor. Whether it's at work, at school, whatever the case may be. Is don't plan evil. That's not the way you approach life in dealing with people. The very first thing is to examine your heart. What is your heart? What is your heart telling you? Are, you? are you upset? Are you angry at your neighbor? Let's not plan that. Don't plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. I got to tell you, I, my dad never taught me to be a good neighbor. He never did. It just The subject didn't come up, and I don't blame him, because of all the things that you think about as you're trying to raise your kids, are you really, is that like number one? 
Be a good neighbor? Well, let's think about it for just a second. You have a neighbor right now and the person sitting next to you in the chairs. How do you treat them? As they're trying to get up to leave to use the restroom or get a drink of water, or you're like, boy, they're really annoying me. They should have taken care of that before the service. Man, I can't believe they're so rude. As you're driving out of the parking lot, you're like, oh, yeah, they're racing me to Lone Pine. They're going to beat me there. Some, yeah, some Christ-like attitude there. It's amazing how big a deal this is. We, how do you treat other people? How do you really view other people? And he has the solution. Uh, he, he digs into it a little bit more before he gives it to us, but some other issues. Do not contend with a man, verse 30, for no reason. When he has done you, no harm. Verse 31, do not envy a man of violence. Do not choose any of his ways. So as you're growing up, you're making choices on how you want to respond to people. You're making choices of who you want to be like. And and what their life looks like and whether or not you want to follow down that path. Believe it or not, you still do that to some degree today, no matter how old you are. You're, you're choosing and envying certain people. If you're in the process of you bought an old house and you're remodeling stuff, you're looking at everyone who has the coolest house. You're not thinking about how much it cost them to do that and what sacrifice they had to make, good or bad. You're just envying certain people. Well, when you're small, you're inherently uh, a target of bigger people. And so as you're growing up, if you're weak, if you're small, just by age alone, um, you get picked on. And this, there's, there's two solutions. Either avoid or become a man of violence, a person of violence. And it's surprising how many adults, not just kids, adults, fall into that path. In other words, the solution in life is to argue, to imitate, intimidate to bully and if necessary beat someone up we see it every day on the news road rage right Uh, but back up just a little bit uh, calling to customer service where you spend 20 minutes you know dialing the specific numbers your passwords that you didn't even know you had going here and there and you get to customer service a live person in india Are, are you a man of violence at that point in time Are you ready to throttle the poor guy? Yeah. It's amazing how quickly we default to certain behaviors to get what we want. And quite frankly, some of those behaviors are effective to a degree. And we've seen that, so we default to that. It says, do not choose or do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. That's not the sort of attitude that you're supposed to have. How many of you have had a manager or a leader who you're just showing up to work for the first day, you're just trying to do your job, but all of a sudden, they're bullying, they're intimidating, they're really harsh. They've chosen a a method of leadership that is... hmm, They're going to just be this arrogant dominating individual 
for no reason at all. You haven't done anything wrong. Why? Because they've seen that probably be effective. That's how they were led. They don't know any better. And he's telling his son here, don't be that guy. Don't envy men of violence. Don't choose any of his ways. Not any. For the devious person, verse 32, is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. Wow. He brings in the Lord once again. He's not just saying, do this, don't do this, because I said so. I got that a lot as a kid. I'm like, yeah, I love you, Dad, but I don't really care. <laughs> you know, I don't like it. I appreciate your opinion, but I don't like it. All of us are like that. But he brings in the ultimate authority. There is a God, the Lord. Have you ever thought of anyone being an abomination to the Lord? I don't really think in those lines. I think that guy's a jerk, but I don't think of him as an abomination to the Lord. That sounds a bit harsh. But the New Testament and Old Testament are the same. And and you find this in the New and the Old. God is very serious about one subject. God. He's serious about others. But ultimately, the standard is His holiness and goodness. When measured against that, He says the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in His confidence. If you're thinking at this point in the message, you're like, I'm not really getting anything out of this. I don't have kids. I'm I'm living a pretty good life. I just want you to stop and assess your life. Just a second. If I could just have your attention. Where do you stand with God? Because all of us face very serious decisions in relationships and choices that will affect your relationship with God even this day. Get a divorce, don't get a divorce. Uh, How do I deal with my kid that's about to go to prison? How do I not? Do I take a job? Do I not? Do I live in a state of anger or not? Do I live in a state of fear or not? Do I... You have some very serious, serious decisions that you're likely making, maybe on a daily basis. And I want to bring you back to this holy God who loves you. But He has certain standards. He says this in verse 33. He says, The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but He blesses the dwelling of the righteous. There are times where things are so tough that you want to act out in violence. That, that you don't want to take the path of righteousness and you want to behave in a wicked way because it seems like the only solution. I just want to encourage you that no matter what you're dealing with today, just simply start with your relationship with God. Don't worry about your boss. Don't worry about all the other relationships. Just say, you know what? I want to be a righteous person before God. Let that be your goal this day. There's a lot of tough stuff that's going to come up in life. Let life take care of life for for now. Just where do you stand before God? I want to be in His confidence. I want to be under His blessing. Righteousness is good. 
if you've not had that conversation with your children, there is wickedness and there is righteousness. God blesses the righteous. Last two verses. Towards the scorner, he is scornful. If, If you don't realize this, as we are reading through the book of Jude, going through that book as well, you'll notice that Jesus is both loving and judge. God is not just this pure love, full of grace, and never bringing or holding anyone to account. Part of His love is judgment, is discipline. He says towards the scorners, He is scornful, but to the humble, He gives favor. The wise will inherit honor. The fool's disgrace. To the humble, He gives favor. As you're trying to figure out who you really are and who you want to be and how you want to behave and look at your heart, start with the simple fact of not placing your vision or who you want to be on what everyone else tells you you should be. Just humble yourself before God. Set everything aside and you go, it's not about me. It's not about my coworker that annoys me every single day. It's, it's not about the relationship that I'm in. It's just me and God. I'm not going to let anything else terrorize me, drive me away, draw me away, my own desires, situations, any of that. I'm just going to relax in God and humble myself before Him. You do that. It's amazing. The peace and the joy that just over is overwhelming that you find. Because your situations no longer control you. You are in control because you've given it to God. And you can have a future and a hope in God. Many of your situations may seem hopeless, but verse 35, he says, the wise will inherit honor, or some translations say glory, a fool's disgrace. The New Testament fleshes this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, kind of in New Testament terms, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So in the Old Testament, here in Proverbs, he's like, inherit honor. That kind of sounds good, but as you learn through the Old Testament, as the New Testament reveals further what God has for us, it isn't just about this life. It's about eternity. All of life leads to eternity. And the New Testament calls this the kingdom of God, or heaven, or new heavens, new earth. He says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So you have to be able to be wise enough to examine life before you. And at this point, you begin living life today with the future, not a future determined by circumstances, not a future determined by your own thoughts and desires, but a future 
that God promises. And so that's where the future comes into, into play today. Not letting your worries about tomorrow rob you of today, but letting God's promises of the future actually build today. Undergird today. He says, and such were some of you in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He returns the individual's thought process back to their point where they repented of their sins. God regenerated them. He justified them. He sanctified them. They are a child of God. When you turn and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you're born again. And there are points in time where it's helpful to remember that if you've forgotten it. No matter your situation, I don't care if you have been diagnosed with a disease that says there's no hope. I don't care if you're in a relationship where you think there's no hope. I don't care if if you are of a certain level of confidence where you think, well, there's no way I'm ever going to be a millionaire and I'm, I'm just at a point in my life that I'm really not happy with. Everyone else seems to be doing better than me. I don't care what your situation or who you are. If you return back to the realization that life is more than life, that you have an eternal inheritance, that you've been born again, that you've been washed, you've been regenerated, there is hope. And all you have to do as you're teaching this to your son and you're trying to live this out is to capture your thoughts. Make them obey Christ. Realize God is your confidence. He is who He says He is. He has not abandoned you. He has not left you. Who do you want to be? Do you want to be that individual? Or do you want to be the individual that just went through high school learning about state capitals, good English, and how to dissect a frog? Who do you want to be? Dad's class is different. I pray that you choose to learn from that class. Be the person that God says you can be in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so very much for Your mercy in my life. As all of us, if we're being honest before You today, we all react poorly in so many different situations every single day. But we're thankful that we can come and that You're faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Cleanse us from our sins, Father. Please forgive us. Please help us to be not just, quote, good neighbors, but people who truly love others. Help us not to envy the world. Father, help us not to live a life of fear, but of confidence in You. We love You. and We praise You. May Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name I pray this. Amen.